Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how you doing? Happy holidays. It's Brad Listy here. I just wanted to quickly remind you that the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are completely free, nearly 500 episodes and counting. They're all completely free. There's another People app. That, too, is free. Everything's free. It's a free show. I give it away for free. So what does this mean? This means that I count on the support of regular listeners to help keep things going. If you would like to support this program this holiday season you can do so at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod thank you and uh happy holidays do you like this music you are not alone you have found other people Okay, so you and I, I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Bradley just one person at just one time. So hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. How's it going? Did I just say that? Am I repeating myself? It's late. I feel tired. It's good to be with you. Emily Gaminder is my guest. She has a story collection out right now from Dezank Books. It is her debut story collection. It is called Dead Girls and Other Stories. It is the winner of the Dezank Books Short Story Prize. It is uh, receiving rave reviews. Dead Girls and Other Stories. Emily Gaminder, that's coming up. Just seconds from now, several seconds, but seconds from now, you'll be hearing my conversation with Emily Gaminder. So uh, this monologue uh, is coming to you after a very tedious process of self-reflection, of self-doubt, of uh, cogitation, which I believe means deep thought or some kind of thought, ruminative thought. I, uh, I'm re-recording this monologue. You know, I, uh, a couple of days ago, I tweeted, I recorded the show. I did the monologue. It was like this spiraling monologue about the, this moment in the culture that we're going through. Like it, it went all over the place. It's, sp- it spoke to the, the, po- the politics of the moment. Uh, it spoke to the, uh, explosion of stories that we are seeing over the past couple of weeks of men behaving badly 
like, I don't even know what the count is at this point, but we're talking dozens of high profile men being uh, publicly uh, accused of sexual assault and worse. And, uh, what else? I mean, it, t- it touched on, uh, so many different things. I guess I just had like this huge week or huge, uh, I don't know, huge, like five years. <laughs> I don't know if it's a week or if it's just recently, but like ingesting all of this media, all of this social media, all of this information, having it swimming around in my head, feeling upset about it, and then having a podcast and feeling some sense of obligation to comment on it because that's what's on my mind. And that's what's kind of on everybody's mind. And it just seemed like, well, what else are you going to talk about? I didn't have anything else to talk about. It was the thing that was like pressing against my skull. So I try to make sense of it all. So I unleashed like a 24 minute meandering spiraling monologue, which you are not hearing right now. I'm doing a do over before I put this episode out into the world. And here's the reason why, like I recorded it and then I I felt like weird about it. And I, in particular felt weird about, uh, you know, my commentary with regard to, uh, the behavior of men and, uh, you know, all of these women coming forward with their stories and like what this means and how it feels. And I couldn't like really, I didn't say anything, uh, terrible. I hope I didn't say anything terrible, but it just wasn't sitting right. I was like, did I really need, like, I guess in the back of my head, I was just like, did I really need to talk for 24 minutes? Like a, it was just an egregiously long monologue. B, I guess I just don't have confidence. Uh, there's some part of me that just didn't have confidence in what I was saying and I couldn't figure out why, you know, like, cause I know that I have, uh, blind spots. Like at my age, it's sort of, I mean, unless you're really tuned in and really bright, it's pretty hard as you get older to not have some blind spots. You do get set in your ways. You do miss things. You know, you're not up to speed on everything that maybe you should be. Sometimes the culture changes, life changes, and you're so busy, like trying to make a living or trying to deal with your family or whatever it is that sometimes you miss things, or it's just like a a personal failing. So I can have those. And, uh, I guess I was worried, like, did I miss something? So you sort of like wobbly there. And then otherwise, uh, it was just kind of like a broad, like what, what was that? And why is it not sitting well? And then I, and then I had an epiphany. (laughs) You ready? Here's the epiphany. Uh, nobody needs to hear me talk about it. Like the world is not on pins and needles waiting for a middle-aged cisgendered white man. Did I say that right? Cisgender, cisgendered. You know what I mean? See what I'm saying? I don't even have that down, but nobody's waiting for my take on this. This isn't my space. And you know, it's a little weird. It's like, uh, I was talking to a friend about it and, uh, this friend was like, well, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's not your space. It's like you, you don't weigh in on every racial issue for example. And yet when it comes to gender stuff, you know, I feel like a certain sense of participation because I'm a man and this is coming down to men and women and how men behave. And, 
Uh, you know, I don't feel terribly tribal about my gender, but there is something of an impulse to try to want to like express yourself. And I don't know. Plus you're just on social media. And so it, I think fosters this environment where you feel like you're supposed to have a take on things, or at least it does that to me. But, uh, that was my epiphany. Like I, I should just be quiet. I don't need to talk about this. I should just be listening. So this is me uh, giving like a rambling monologue about how I need to be listening. <laughs> but at least it's not 24 minutes long. I hope that makes sense. And I hope I didn't like, I also, because I'm so uh, wishy-washy, I'm, I also hope I didn't like self-center or uh, self-censor. See, that was a Freudian slip. I just said self-center instead of self-censor. What is that telling me? Fuck. We live in troubled times. Just trying to do the right thing. Cause the least amount of harm. Anyway, that's where my head's at. And, uh, if you were, uh, hoping for the 24 minute monologue, which I, um, you know, tweeted about, I'm sorry that you're not getting your 24 minute monologue. Maybe next time. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is uh, Emily Gaminder. Her debut story collection is called Dead Girls and Other Stories. It's available now from Dezank Books, winner of the Dezank Books Short Story Prize. Had a great time meeting her and uh, having her over here. She was just here a couple of weeks ago, and it's great to get to shine a light on her work as she has this great first publishing success. So here she is, folks. This is Emily Gaminder. <laughs> My mom lived um, in a very small town called Hopewell, which is near Princeton, and my dad lived outside of New Brunswick. Okay. It's like, you know, I think Jersey kind of gets a bad rap. It's kind of it beautiful. Does. It's, it's kinda, a terrible it, rap. It's beautiful, though, down, especially down south, right? It's a little yeah. hilly. and Yeah, the town where my mom lives is beautiful. Like, it's like extremely scenic and like farmland. And, it's even um, called Hopewell. I know. 
I kind of hate, I, I, yeah, I'm not like a huge fan of that town, but. Why? I don't know. Um, That's because you, you went, were you an adolescent there? I was an adolescent there for part of the time. That's yeah, why. Yeah. That's why. Because when, we, wherever, we always hate where we're from. Wherever you like, no, but there's a distinction. Cause I actually, you know, split my childhood among different places. The place where I was an adolescent is the place that I have the most antipathy toward. But the place where I was like, you know, four years old until 11 years old, I kind of like revere and yeah. I, I have these like sort of like, uh, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, idyllic memories, you know, like it, it seems to me like that was the best place. That makes sense. I'm trying to get back there. Yeah. But all yeah, like, I feel like born and raised in Jersey for you though. You were born there? and raised in Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And are your parents, uh, literary people? No, no, not at all. Um, my dad, I don't think I ever saw him read a book in my entire life ever. What I mean, he? he's, he's really smart and like reads the paper, but he's just not like a literary person. Although he, he actually, um, yeah, he's a good writer, but he doesn't write. Is he going to read, is he going to read your book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what does he do? Um, he was a social worker. Um, he worked for the county, like for a public um, mental health care facility. Oh, cool. And what about mom? Um, my mom actually didn't work most of the time when I was growing up, but she was she was originally a therapist. And then when I was in college, she went back to school um, and got recertified as um, like a school therapist. Oh, yeah. so your parents are both sort of therapeutic, right, in their work? Yeah. In their work. <laughs> <laughs> what about siblings? Um, I have uh, two older stepsisters and two younger brothers. Okay. Yeah. So lots of siblings. Lots of siblings. Are but they... like they're not all in the same house. Like two were in one house and two were in the other. So. And yeah. what kind of kid were you? It's like a really quiet, shy, like extremely, extremely shy, bookish kid. Um like I, had, I had so much trouble like talking to people when I was young. Um, yeah, I just read a lot. That was it. Yeah. Very interior. Very interior. Yeah. Do you know why? Like, what is uh, what is shyness? Where did that come from? I think I do think it's sort of it is almost something that you're born with. I think I don't know. Like I, my younger brother is just like an extremely social person, and he was always that way. Um, I think. I don't know. I think for me, it was also a little bit like my parents divorced when I was like one or two. And so I was going back and forth between like these very different places and sort of trying to like reconfigure like step parents, so new siblings, like in sort of like radically different households. Um, so I think that that contributed a little. What was so radically different? Was it like different ideology or just different like dynamics, like socially? Just different dynamics. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, the difference between, was it Hopewell and New Brunswick is like, one's like this sort of like bucolic and then what's New Brunswick? Is that North? Yeah. Yeah. Um, New Brunswick is where Rutgers is. It's like, it's a small city. Um, my dad lived in Highland Park, which is like a, a little town, like just across the river from New Brunswick. Um, yeah, it's definitely not like rolling hills it's more like turnpike adjacent jersey <laughs> um like a lot of strip malls and like yeah. but I, I love that town the jersey of the imagination yes yeah but you liked it yeah there's more going on there there's more going on there so is that where you would like sort of uh 
I don't know, when you were in high school, is that where you probably gravitated to it more than Hopewell? Well, I did actually live there for like a year when I was in high school. Um, I went to live with my dad when I was like 15. Um, Why is that? Uh, long story, but I ran away from <laughs> my mom's house and... The rebellion. Yeah, the rebellion. <laughs> and it resulted in in me... Um, yeah, yeah. My dad came to like pick me up at a police station and it's like you're gonna come live here now. Well, did you get arrested? Uh no, but I was I mean, if you're like fifteen and you're missing, they like look for you, I guess. Oh, and they tracked you down. They tracked me down. Where'd they find you? Um at uh, a a guy's house. Oh. Wow, okay. So this is good teenage stuff. It's also making me immediately think of my own daughter and think of uh, like just because my kids are young. So I'm just like, wow, they're going to be adolescent. And those years are crazy. And I, you know, there's how, no, how old are they now? Like seven and two. Okay. So, so you've I got, got some time. Yeah. But it's like, no matter what, there's going to be stuff. And I just wonder what the stuff is going to be. I don't think, I don't think there will necessarily be like that stuff. You never know. You never know, but you don't seem like the kind of person who would run away or be like, you, you don't strike me temperamentally as a rebellious sort. Yeah, I guess not. It's more sort of like quiet rebellion, quiet rebellion. Yeah. Just like quietly building up until like you have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you were 15. I was 15. Yeah. So then I went and lived with my dad for a year and started going to high school in that town. Um, but then I, I ran away again went back to live with my mom, but still kept going to high school in, in my dad's town. Are they close enough for you to be able to do that? Not really. It was like kind of ridiculous. Like I had to drive a really long way to high school. It was like How an long? hour. Like an hour. Wow. Yeah. But you ran away again? Yeah. To a guy's house? Or no, just, no. Just... I um, took a bus to... It was... I took the train from New Brunswick into New York um, and then got a bus that was supposed to go to San Francisco, but I only made it to Salt Lake City because I went out. Whoa, that's a big runaway. Yeah, that was a big runaway. Okay, this is good stuff. <laughs> and you're 16 at this point. I was point. 16. Yeah. Your, your parents must have been freaking out. Yeah. I think they thought I was dead uh, the second time. <laughs> but what, what, like, what was the impetus? Just Well, the, the second time... The impetus was, I, I don't, I don't know. It's sort of hard to even figure out now. I mean, part of it was that I wanted to go back. Um, I, I don't know. I felt like I, I wanted to go back and live with my mom, but I didn't quite know how to do that. I don't know. Cause I was like, you know, it's no matter how fucked up your family is, like the family that you grow up with. Like my brothers were there. You ultimately want to be with them, even sure. if it's like not the greatest situation. Um, so yeah, I think that I I think I in some I don't I don't know that I was consciously doing this, but I think I thought that I had to do something big um, in Make order for this to happen. Yeah, statement. Um, yeah, and yeah I think and I think part of, and then like some other stuff too is just like I just had to like get away and I don't know like thought, stuff happening at school or no, not at school. I think I just like had a lot going on like in my head, and I think I thought that like if I went on this bus ride, I would have like this set amount of time to just like sit on the bus and like figure out my whole life. Did you get it done? 
No. <laughs> no. You never figure out anything on a Greyhound bus is what I was going to say, you're a young girl. Cross-country buses, I mean, it can be fine, but there can be some oddballs on those bus rides. Yeah, I think there were definitely oddballs, but they were all, like, really nice oddballs. I, I think I was, like, very, like, hyper-vigilant and on guard. Um, but everyone who I met was really kind to me. Um, and you could just yeah. buy a ticket. I mean, there's no age. They, they don't, like, check your... No. If you're a minor, no, you, you don't just, have to have, like, an adult with you. You can just get a... With a bus ticket, no. And especially, like, New York, I think, like, everyone... I don't know. Teenagers are a little bit more... Like, they run loose. And, yeah. <laughs> Feral yeah. kids. Yeah. So you get on this bus. Um, you meet some nice weirdos. And you're traveling west with the idea that you're going to go to San Francisco. Right. Do you have any money? No, because I'd been saving up my money, like... All year. Um, not for this purpose, but I just, I was, had like maybe like a hundred dollars. And so I went to buy this ticket and the ticket was way more expensive than I thought it was going to be. So that was like all of my money. So I had no money. Like I, like I, I paid for the last few dollars in like quarters. Um, so I was, I had like absolutely no money. Yeah. So people were like, people saw that I was like not eating and they were like giving me food and like, yeah. People were really nice. Well, that makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it could have like just as easily gone the other way, but it just happens to be... I was going to say, because yeah. I want to say I've talked to somebody on this show who was like on one of these cross-country bus trips and like fell asleep and like woke up and like, you know, there's like a guy just like staring at her, you know, something weird, you know, like the people get weird in the night on the bus or whatever, but um, you are going West, you're, you know, with the, with the intention of getting to San Francisco and with the hope of sorting out your entire life mm -hmm. by having some time away yeah. from school, from your, your family. Um, at what point do you start to think to yourself, like, what the fuck am I doing? Did you have that thought? Yeah. <laughs> well, I had that thought. <laughs> um, there were, uh, yeah, there were like these two guys on the bus who were sort of like, I don't know. They had, they were like these big burly guys. They had backpacks. They were like traveling across the country too, I guess. Um, and they had talked to me. Um, I don't know. Everyone was like asking me how old I was and I was always lying and saying I was older, but I'm 34. Yeah. 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 I, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm 20. Um, but I, th I think people probably, I, I, I didn't look like 20. Or, yeah. You um, barely look 20 now. <laughs> um, so I think they they had talked to me and they were they were really nice and I had told them that I was going to San Francisco and they were getting off the bus at like Cheyenne or somewhere um, and before they got off the bus they stopped by my seat and they were like hey the San Francisco bus stop is really sketchy and you I, I, oh I also told people that like my dad I was going to visit my dad or something like that. Um, and they're like, just, just wait there, wait at the bus station until your dad comes get, comes to get you, like, don't leave. And then I got really freaked out and I was like, fuck, I have no plan for what I'm going to do when I get there. Um, and so that was like the moment when I was like, I, I, I I'm just going to get off in Salt Lake city and talk to some nice Mormons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you get off the bus in Salt Lake city. Yeah. You have no money. Right. You were, you're 16 years old. Yeah. Would you call home? Say, by the way, I, I'm in Salt Lake City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eventually oh I called home. Um, and yeah, they had to like buy me a bus ticket because I didn't have any money. Um, they made you ride the bus home? 
Well, uh, well, how else was I going to get home? I don't know. Take a taxi to the airport. Oh, uh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I just talked. <laughs> no, it was like another three days on the bus back home. Some more time yeah. to think. More time to think. How was the yeah. bus ride home? Like well, the bus anticlimactic? Ride home, well, first, um, well, they also called the police because the police had been looking for me. So they had to tell the police that I was like, okay. And I was in Salt Lake City. Um, so then um, police in Salt Lake City got notified. And so someone came up to me while I was waiting for the bus to go home. Um, and he like, he put like a, like, a like a, I don't know, not a ribbon, but some sort of like a, like almost like a hospital band around my wrist. I, like, I forget what it said. Um, but something that was like supposed to like mark me as like, I, they were supposed to like keep an eye on me. Um, and he told, he told me to sit right behind the bus driver, and the bus driver was going to, like, keep an eye on me. Um, so I did that for, like, the first bus driver. Um, but then, like, bus drivers change. And, um, yeah, so then, I, I, yeah, it was it, it, it felt much longer going back than I did <laughs> going there. Yeah, the, it's always yeah, the excitement's sort of gone. Yeah. You yeah. know, you're just like, just get me home. Get me off this smelly bus. Yeah. And, like, why is Nebraska going on forever? Ever. Yeah. So did you, did like, did that create some sort of psychological breaking point did you ever do anything as as uh, rebellious after that like did you sort of get it out of your system at that point or did you have more well i don't know how much more there was to do at that point i feel like i'd sort of that was like peak rebellion that's like peak rebellion i would i would be freaking out as a parent, I can tell yeah, you that. Yeah. That's not yeah. what you want to hear. It's like, I'm in Salt Lake City, Dad. Or I'm like halfway across the country on a Greyhound bus. Yeah. <sighs> Did you apologize? Did you feel bad? Or were you just like, you uh, deserved no. it? No. No, I didn't feel bad at all. <laughs> um, You're like, I, they, st I still don't feel bad. I still don't feel bad. I mean, I mean, yeah. What did they do? Did they do something to deserve this? My parents are all a little, it's, it's pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. Right? Well, I don't know. Dysfunctional implies like a level of function too. I think it's maybe like more like pure chaos. Um, <laughs> but, so it was a proportionate response is what you're saying. I feel like it was a proportionate response. Um, I think, and like, I also feel like, I, yeah, I, I don't feel bad about like, yeah, I don't feel bad about the bus ride at all because I feel like it was sort of like. I don't know. I feel like it was like claiming some agency over my own life and yeah. Yeah. And you weren't on drugs or were you? Uh, no, I wasn't on drugs. So you weren't like, and you weren't with like, you know, there was nothing criminal about it. You just right. wanted to get away. Yeah. You were making a statement. I was making a statement. A geographical yeah. statement, a powerful geographical statement. Yeah. Did it change anything about the relationship you had with your parents? Like when you came back, were they like, wow, if she was pissed off enough to go to Salt Lake City, maybe we need to address this. Well, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> like nothing sort of could like affect them. I think I tried to like make some like other statements with them, but they're just like, you can't affect them. Like, you, you know, like, I don't know. It's like a lot of like addiction and like, I don't know, violence. And like, you just can't affect people like that. Um, I think it did. I mean, my dad was really upset because I had like run away from his house and his house was supposed to be like the stable house. So it was like doesn't reflect well on you if like your daughter is like running away to like go live at the unstable house um so he he and i didn't talk for a few years but yeah we're fine now you've reconciled since then yeah so you had to navigate some tough stuff like it wasn't necessarily like the simplest childhood no def it say. definitely wasn't like a simple childhood but it made a writer yeah. out of you yeah or yeah. do you think you would have been a writer anyway 
It's hard to know. I mean, I think I always wanted to be a writer, but I do feel like that was sort of like aided by having sort of like this interior life that I couldn't like talk about. And where are you in the pecking order with with the kids? Are you the eldest, the middle? Um, at my mom's house, I'm I'm the oldest. Um, she, um, my mom remarried when I was four, um, and so my brothers are they're they're technically my half brothers. Um, so they're, yeah, they're six and eight years younger than me. Um, and then my dad, at my dad's house, I'm the youngest. Um, my stepsisters are eight and 12 years older. Oh, wow. So, so you kind of had it older. both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Do you learn a lot from your stepsisters? Yeah. They were passing things along yes. to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, go to the, like... just go to the Greyhound station, <laughs> buy a ticket. Don't bring any money. They were probably way more responsible than I was, but they were good. They were like, you know, like older siblings are good for like learning about like music. Culture. And like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're like, you know, almost like celebrities in, in your mind. Like I just like studied them and wanted to do everything like them. Wow. Celebrities. Yeah. What about, uh, books as refuge? I mean, you talk about like tumultuous aspects of childhood and being sort of inward and shy like, were there books that you were, like, kind of uh, really grabbing onto as, like, instruction manuals, things like that? Or just, like, mm-hmm. escape? Yeah, maybe more as escape. I'm trying to think if there were, like, any instruction manuals. Um, this is a big theme in I my life. I'm always of. looking for the instruction manual. <laughs> I think I brought, like, On the Road with me or something when I ran away, which is just, like, <laughs> such a cliche. Yeah. <laughs> There's really not uh, a better book. Well, I guess there, yeah. I mean, there's like a small handful, but that's right there in the, like the, mo- like the, you know, the runaway book. Yeah. I still have like affection for that book, even though there are parts of it that now I'm like sort of aghast at. Really? Yeah. Like what parts? I'm trying to remember it. I just like his, the way he treats women and like, just yeah. like all the women in the book are just sort of like repositories for men to like pass through. And that's yeah. the thing about the beats, uh, like hetero and homo. Uh, and by relationships like the the sex was like very uh what's the word transactional or yeah. just yeah. like whatever everyone and like i remember being in boulder when i was in college and i want to say alan ginsburg would spend time there at least like in certain seasons you know because oh, yeah. of he europa was in, yeah, yeah yeah and uh there were always like these stories about you know there's many stories about the way that he was with like younger younger men slash boys and right. you're just like what's going on yeah it's a free-for-all totally uh, and I find that too, like when you read a lot of 20th century fiction, uh, written by men, you know, that's one of the things when you, when you start to like sense its age, like that's one of the things that tends to stand out to me is the interactions, interactions between men and women and the portrayals of women in particular. Right. Yeah. I was reading a Philip Roth book recently. Um, and like, yeah, I, I, I love Philip Roth, but it's also like, it's, it's hard to read some of that, like the, the gender dynamics. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So Kerouac was, was big for you. Other beats? Like what other, uh, what other authors and books do you remember from childhood that really, um, I remember reading, um, electric Kool-Aid acid test around the same time as Kerouac, um, and really loving that book also, um, did you do, did you do drugs in high school, stuff like that? Were you into psychedelics? Not really. It was more, I mainly waited until college to do that. Um, yeah, I think, what else? Um, I read The Tin Drum when I was like, 
I don't know, like 13. I don't know. My parents weren't like very literary, but they had like books around like my... It's like furniture. Yeah. Like my, well, my stepdad's like first wife had been like a serious English major and she had sort of like, I don't know, I think left in a hurry. Um, but so there are all these books that were hers and I still have all of these books of like this woman that I don't know. So I would just like take them randomly off the shelf and read them. So I read The Tin Drum and I remember that book like blowing my mind. Um at like 13 and that's it's pretty young to be reading the tin drum yeah i think my mom actually suggested it to me i don't think she knew what was in it she was just like oh yeah here's a book you that's can a, read that's a great thing about childhood like thinking about reading books that are outside of your age range like yeah that's a, that's a good thing to do it's a great thing to do and i feel like even if you don't understand it because i feel like i didn't understand like 90 percent of that book you still you still understand enough of it to to get something to understand that you don't really have to understand everything in a book. And also just like, I don't know, I feel like the books that you read in adolescence, like they're, those sentences are just like ingrained in you in a way that later reading is not. It's like wet clay. Yeah. Yeah. And what about, uh, have you ever read a book? Like I've had this experience before. I ask people about it sometimes, but have you ever read a book that you just like really literally did not understand the book? Like you couldn't understand it, but then had the experience of, uh, you know, many, several years later, picking it up again, reading it and having it affect you profoundly and getting it in a very deep way. Yeah. <laughs> Have you had that before? I think so. Yeah. I can't remember a specific book, but I feel like that's definitely happened. Or you understand it in a completely different way. Like, really, you, you thought you understood it and now you understand it. And... Or vice versa. Like you read a book and it was like so powerful for you when you were like 14 and then you pick it up again when you're 24 and you're like, Ooh, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So timing is timing has a lot to do with like, you know, how important a book is to us. And there's nothing better, I think, than picking up a book at exactly the right moment in time in your life where it's just yeah. sort of like made for that moment made for you. Yeah. You know, so who else and like, who else had a big impact on you? Um, who else? I don't know. In high school, um, I don't know. I was going through like a militant feminist separatist phase. I read a lot of Andrea Dworkin. Um, so that was a big, <laughs> I want to know the Emily in high school. I want to hang with her. I think I can, well, I, I wouldn't have talked to you. I just, communi right. I just communicated to others by like the books that I was reading. So I felt like that was like making, I felt like partially Andrea Dworkin was just like making a statement, even though I don't know how many people like even were you cared. reading in the cafeteria at a table by yourself? Was that you? Well, I never went to the cafeteria because I would have been at a table by myself, probably. Um, so I would I would leave school and go to the library a lot. Um, Eat your lunch in the library. Yeah. Like, and yeah. what was your aesthetic? Were you goth? Were you? No, I wasn't. I don't know. I wasn't goth. I wasn't. I wasn't really anything. No I don't multiple know. piercings. No tattoos. No, nothing, nothing exciting. Like, like I was just sort of like trying to hide. I don't know. I wore like a lot of like. I remember I wore like this like like a man's sweater that was like way too big for me for like a year and thought, yeah. I don't a man's sweater. Yeah. What kind of sweater? Like cable knit? What are we talking? Like not, not cable knit, but just like a really big <laughs> baggy, like, yeah. Yeah. I feel like someone should, I, maybe my mom tried, but you just made, I feel like I made such bad fashion choices as an adolescent with such yeah. conviction. And you're just like, and you look at the pictures, you're like, I like, these pictures need to be destroyed. I look terrible. <laughs> like everything from my hair to the sweaters I was wearing, a turtleneck, like just awful. What decade was this? This is like the nineties, you know, okay. late, like yeah. late eighties, early nineties kind of period. And that's like a good time for outrageous fashion. 
Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, I contributed to it, but it's like, couldn't someone have just pulled me aside and been like, just wear some jeans and a t-shirt, like keep it simple. You'll be so much happier. But I guess everybody's got to go through that phase or I think it's, yeah, maybe it's a good thing. What testing boundaries? Well, no, like, like how, I don't know, like realize, like being able to like look back on your younger self and be like, what was I, I don't know, what was I thinking? And I don't know, I feel like it makes you more empathetic for, for other people. Uh, it gives you some humility. So, okay. So you, you made it out of high school. Made it out of high school. You graduated. Yeah. You must've been pretty, pretty good student. I mean, if you were a bookish. Not really. I mean, I was a good, I was like a great student in like English and like creative writing. Like my teachers loved me, but then, um, like I I didn't care about anything else. So I was just like sort of a slacker. Like I was never, like I never did my math homework and were teachers telling you that you should write. Yeah. Well, I was already writing. So there's, yeah, there were like, I had really, I had some really good, like encouraging teachers. What were you writing? Um, Were you writing some poetry? writing poetry is writing fiction like memoir i don't even know just like everything at that age yeah does any of this writing survive yeah i still have all of it oh, really <laughs> i'm afraid to look at it I was gonna like, say. <laughs> <laughs> like looking into the sun or did something. you write when you were on the greyhound bus did you like were you penning like on the road like you know i think i had the intention of of writing but i didn't actually i think i wrote down like a few notes like a few little details and some of them did actually like make their way into like things i actually wrote i was gonna say that seems like something you should write about yeah i did in this okay well so there you go you're collecting material yeah yeah like some yeah i think some of the details that i wrote down trying to think yeah like some of this i wrote down signs and some of those i put like in the like there's a story about a girl who runs away and uh, i put that in there there you go so what about uh college where'd you go i went to hampshire college oh my god that's like i've heard stories about hampshire college <laughs> it's like a hippie school in the uh, woods yeah i was gonna say like hampshire college is like like you think your college was bohemian mm-hmm. and left a center like hampshire college puts them all to shame yeah and then you go to hampshire college and yeah. Okay. So give me, give me the, like, what is Hampshire college? Like you show up. I loved it. I was so happy there. It was like the only school I wanted to go to because you could design your own program of study. Um, I showed up, um, were you a hippie? I guess I was, there was sort of like the different, I, I don't know. I wasn't like really a hippie. There were like some like extreme hippies who were like out living in the woods and like farming. I wasn't like one of those people, but I wasn't one of the like hipster art students either. Um, yeah, I don't know what I was. I think like my friends were just sort of like the weirdos who, who didn't fit in even at Hampshire. They were like, yeah, there's just no place for us anywhere, (laughs) but at least this is like an accepting little, like, you know, environment where you can you know, have some freedom to explore what you want to explore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. And did you know going in that like, I'm going to study literature. I want to be a writer. Yeah. You knew. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like, who are your heroes besides, I mean, we, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but usually you've got to have somebody who's like pulling you like, you know, it's like a constellation of, um, writers that you really love, but like, who, who were you hoping to emulate? Trying to think at that time who I was hoping to emulate. Um, I remember I loved um, Iron Daddy Roy at that time. God of Small Things. The God of Small Things. I read that in college, yeah, or yeah. like read right at when was that? Nineteen ninety-seven. Ninety-seven. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I read that. That would have been my senior year in college. Yeah, I think I read it in high school, um, and 
But I think, yeah, I love that book. And then I also um, loved her. Like, she, she's very, like, politically active. And I think I really liked that about her. Um, yeah, I can't even remember who my literary heroes were at that time. But just a lot. Yeah, a lot. And then what about exploring? I mean, you get to Hampshire College. I've got to imagine everyone's doing drugs. And it gets, yeah. did, you get, did you go wild? I didn't go wild. I definitely, like, experimented. Any, wasn't like, did you have any like major like powerful experiences like where you're in the woods and suddenly like you saw Jesus or there was a lot of like being in the woods and like doing mushrooms and like that kind of thing. Um, I don't I donn't ever see Jesus. Was it formative it. though? It's like because I'm always like I'm always fishing for this. I always want someone to tell me like you know what I had like the most powerful experience. It shifted the entire paradigm. It did shift. It, it didn't shift the entire paradigm, but it, it shifts it like a tiny bit. I think. I remember doing doing mushrooms with my friends in the fall, and so it's like New England and beautiful. We were just like playing in the leaves, and I remember feeling like I was like seeing all of my friends as children, like actually experiencing them as children. Um, and that's beautiful. Yeah, and then just like <laughs> sort of like lying on the ground and like scrunching up leaves in my hand and like watching them expand slowly and and feeling like. I feel like in the days and weeks after that, I did have like an appreciation for just like small sensory details of like touch in a way that I didn't before. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think that's the way you put the way you put it where it shifts it a little. I think that's really the best you can hope for. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to shift too much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to break the paradigm, but, um, I think that, you know, people often describe those experiences as fleeting which they are because it wears off and whatever epiphanies you might've had, which felt so powerful in the moment, it's hard. You can't hang on to them. They're slippery, right? but there is some sort of internal shift. I think that happens, uh, or that often happens that does fundamentally change you, you know, just yeah. going forward, like the things are slightly tilted or yeah. for me, I guess I just, uh, I always felt like after those experiences, it was like, Oh, well, whatever it is that I'm looking at that I'm calling reality to myself there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Just that, just like that humility, like, wow, I'm really only seeing like a fraction of what's actually going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's like, yeah, that's exactly right. But I haven't been able to either find the time or muster the courage to go back. I don't know if you can go back. Like in, yeah. I'm in my forties now. I'm like, do I do this again? Do I want to go back in <laughs> from this perspective? And there are plenty of people who do. Right. And I've talked about it ad nauseum on this show. It's like one of the recurring themes. Uh, and yet, like I still, you know, where, where am I going to do this? And like, how am I going to locate these, uh, yeah, mushrooms, you know, that's sort of my question too. Like I feel like the circumstances would have to be so perfect and everything would have to align in just the right way in order to make me want to do it again. Yeah. But, but when you're at Hampshire college and you're 19 years old, yeah, you have to, that's it. Yeah. And it's beautiful there, right? Um, it what, is beautiful. I have, yeah. I have no visual reference for it. Like, what is it like? Ro- is it woods, rolling hills? It's woods, rolling hills, like mountains in the distance. It's when, like Western New Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that where um, Cripaloo is? Isn't there like oh, some, out in like the Western? I could be wrong. I I know what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if that's I don't know how near that is. Like okay. that big like yoga retreat yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Where people just like spend you know quiet time. Right. Yuppies yeah. like walking in circles quietly. Eating yeah. It's like the Berkshires. It's like yuppies and like Tanglewood and all of that. Okay, so you're at Hampshire. You're going to be a writer. You're, you know, having psychedelic experiences in the woods during the autumn, you know, color explosion. 
And then what else did you, did you feel it must've been nice to get away and have some independence like after yeah. your tumultuous high school like, experiences and so on and so forth. It seems like you were probably very hungry to be out on your own. Right. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I was talking to a friend from college about this recently and she was saying how, yeah, college was like in some ways a hard time for her. And I was like, Oh, it's such an easy time for me. I was like, life is so much easier now. Like yeah. life is infinitely easier. That's the thing about having a tough childhood you know, is that you develop uh, calluses, you get strong and you learn what you can live through, you know, it toughens you to, right. to go through. And there are people I know, this is a fascination to me is people who by, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, whatever, you know, the, the way that things have lined up and their particular fate is that they don't have a ton of difficulties in life. Like not yeah. a lot of loss, very happy home life, not a lot of illness or difficulty or exposure to any of these things. You know, it's just like an, it's a relatively easy ride. And I sort of marvel at it. And I'm like, what did they do in past lives to deserve? <laughs> they must've been, they must've really had a tough one before, you know, or whatever. But, um, I, I, I say that, but then I also think to myself, uh, you know, nobody rides for free. So eventually they're going to get theirs too. Maybe there's a benefit to getting it when you're young, so provided you make it through, because then, I don't know, adulthood and like all that comes with adulthood and aging and eventual demise gets, makes it a little easier because you're prepared. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think you're, you're going to have some sort of adversity at some point. And so... Might as well get it out of the way. Yeah. Or like if you, yeah, if you, if your life has been too easy for like the first 30 years, like then what do you do when it gets hard? What do you write about? Right. You got to have something, right? Don't you have to have something to work against? I think so. I know people who don't, who somehow seem to do it. I don't know. They just yeah. like live in the imagination. Yeah. Something like that. I'm always baffled by those people. And so you had a great time at college. Yeah. Nothing terrible happened. No, nothing terrible. You got your degree? Yeah. Did you write a book in college or anything like really ambitious like that? I did try to write a book for my like senior thesis. Um, yeah, I, re I wrote like maybe like a third of a novel and have never looked at it again. It was called what? Like the mushrooms and the trees? I don't even remember what it was called. Oh. <laughs> Probably something like <laughs> the mushrooms and the trees. The leaves are talking to me. Yeah. Yeah. By Emily Gaminder. Uh, th by the way, that's been uh, the title of uh, 742 senior theses at Hampshire College. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great when they read out all the... In my next life, I want to go to Hampshire College. I feel I like I would thrive it. there. Yeah. I mean, like, what about... You know, if you're going to go to college, you might as well go somewhere, like, in the woods, and there's no rules. Did they even give you grades? No, it's no. Fantastic. I mean, they gave you, like, long written evaluations, which was, like, some... I think that was so much better, like, because it's, like, actually, like, talked about, like, the work that you did and... Like, who you yeah. are as a person. Yeah. Your development. Yeah. Emotionally. Right. Spiritually. Uh, they do that at UC Santa Cruz, too. There's no grades. Oh, yeah. That seems like a sort of... It's like, it's yeah. like it may, might be, like, the other polarity or, like, the other... It's, it's like the twin. There's, like, a lot of uh, similarities, I feel like, between UC Santa Cruz's methodology and Hampshire College. Right. Right. So, you're in college... Uh, you know, you're writing your, you know, a third of your novel, you're getting your degree, you know, you want to be a writer. What did you want to do after college? I had no idea what I was going to do after college. Um, you know, who freaks me out? People who know exactly what they want to do, like right out of college, you have okay. like a plan. Yeah. I don't, I can't imagine that. 
I had no clue. I mean, I knew that I wanted to be a writer in some way. I just had no idea how to do that, and I didn't know how I was going to, like, have a job. Um, so I think, yeah, I think my last year, when I started applying for jobs, I started looking at journalism jobs because, I don't know, I'd never taken any journalism classes, but I thought, like, oh, that's something I can do that's sort of like writing. So, like, so then, what, like being like a beat reporter for like a local paper or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I didn't do that, but I thought about that. Um, do you think about going to New York City? That's what I did do. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Because every, I mean, this is something that for some reason escaped me as a, uh, you know, a young writer. It never occurred to me to go to New York until I guess it was too late. I wish I would have. I think it occurred to me because I grew up in New Jersey. And so when I would take the bus, like to and from college, um, I started to realize I was just like, I felt like excited when the bus got to New York City and I just felt like, oh, this is the place that I'm supposed to be. Like there's an energy here that just feels right. Yeah. I mean, see, I, when I was out of college, like, you know what I wanted to do? I was like, I'm going to move to Alaska. I'm going to like work in a fishing cannery. It was like that kind of thing. I Did was, you do that? No, I didn't. Um, Why not? I just could never get my shit together. Maybe the courage to go up there, but it was like, it was like, that's what they, I wanted to drive a truck. I was like, I'm going to be a truck driver. Cause I just wanted to like be alone <laughs> yeah, and like have time to think and like drive around the country. Like to me, it seemed like the perfect job, but like, again, I never made that happen, but it was like, that's where my head was. I've had multiple writer friends who had like dreams of driving a truck. Yeah. It's just like that solitude and then like that motion, but it's actually like a really hard life. It's grueling. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I think it's maybe uh, easy to idealize. It's like my other, it's like my prison fantasy. Like I want to go to prison just so I can have some time to read. <laughs> no one's going to bother me, but it's not that easy. So, uh, what happened in New York? Um, well, I went to New York to work for, um, this little news agency that was based at the UN. It wasn't affiliated with the UN, but it was, the office was there. Like basically like the guy who had started it. He had worked for like UNDP for years, so he was already had access to the UN, and he just what's UNDP? Uh, it's like the UN Development Program. Oh, it's okay. like, um, yeah, working with like global South countries. Um, yeah, I so I just sort of like I I, I initially was going to be an intern there, and then because I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I had a cousin in New York who I was like, who very kindly let me crash with him, like in his apartment. Um, originally it was going to be for a few months. It became like a year. Um, so I went to like intern for this, this news agency and then the assistant editor quit. Um, the boss was like very sketchy, which I realized How later. So? It's like a, like small scale Harvey Weinstein, like just, sort of boss. The pervy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the assistant editor quit. I don't know if it had anything to do with that, but then, so then I got her job and then I, so I worked there for a while. Um, and just, until it just like got to be too much with him. Um, yeah, I think I just sort of, um, I don't know. I was so I don't know. I was so young and stupid. I just sort of like blamed myself, and I was like, 
maybe I was too familiar with him, maybe I was too nice or whatever. And then when I realized that he was doing it to other people also, I was like, oh, shit. Like, this what, has- what is that? It's like, and he's doing it to other women, not yeah, just, yeah, it, yeah. It, was, it was women. Mm-hmm. It wasn't men. It was all women. Yeah. So, okay. So, cause I was, I've been reading a lot about this, like everybody else and thinking a lot about this. It's sexual, it's power, but it feels, and it's those two things. It's like a guy who doesn't feel like he can get sex without having some sort of like occupational leverage or, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like what, what's up with it? I do it? think it's like all about the power. Um, yeah. like, I mean, I guess it, it must have something to do with sex also, but I think it's mostly power. It's mostly power. I should be less shocked. I'm not surprised, mm-hmm. but there is a sense of shock and maybe I should, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be, I should have been more awake to it. I think if you're, if you're like moving through this world as a man, like, why would you, you don't have to be aware of it in the same way that like women have to, are made very aware from an early age. So I think it is like easy for, to like not know. And I, I have a little bit, like I get this from my mom where like my mom, if like the news is really bad and it's like incontrovertibly bad, but like mom, aliens have landed in the front yard and they just like ate the neighbor's dog. She'd be like, no, they didn't. They didn't do that. They're nice. Let's, you know, just like my mother always wants to like, she reacts to incontrovertibly bad news by wanting to like, just like will herself to believe the best of people. And like, no, no, no. Like it's kind of like a defense mechanism. Right. And I think I have a little bit of that. Where I'm just like, no, you know, come on, we gotta, I, I t- that's the conversation I have with myself. And I think it's a way of like deflecting it. Cause it's like, it's hard for me to, to process it all. Yeah. I think, I think everyone, like everyone, maybe not everyone, but like most people start that way. Like, I think that's like the sort of like de facto way, hopefully we're in the world of like trusting people and wanting to believe the best about people. Like, I think, like, even, like, I don't know, I, one of the things that was, like, helpful to me when I was, like, writing this book, and I sort of write about it in the book, is, like, was, like remembering, like, the first time I heard about, like, like uh, a gang rape that had happened in, like, the town that I grew up in, and I was, like, 13 or something, and just, like, having no concept of, like, what that meant, and having this, like, such, like, privileged understanding of that, um, and I think... And, like, I remember my thought was, like, well, she didn't die. Like, she could still, like, get up and, like, walk away. And, like, now I'm, and, like, I sort of forgot about that for a long time. And then I, like, remembered and I was, like, horrified at that memory. But, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, like, I, you know, you're, like, you're, you're triggering memories in me from high school where, like, there was a, a party in high school, the grade above me. And, you know, when you're 16 years old and you're drinking way too much, like everyone's just so, so stupid and hormonal and, you know, it's just ripe for bad behavior, basically. But there's like a girl who got really, really drunk and was basically raped by a bunch of guys. Uh, and like nothing really ever happened, but she was like suicidal after it. I remember there was like a suicide attempt. Yeah. You know, and, but I mean, like, I'm remembering this almost too casually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing ever happened in my town either. And that's sort of like my horror of like ever going back to that town. Like sometimes like I like look at people on Facebook who I grew up with and they're all like still friends with the guy and like, yeah. 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 
Well, okay, yeah, because the thing is, too, is that, like, everybody was drunk. Doesn't excuse it. I don't think it was, like, vicious. I think it was just, like, I mean, it was abusive, but it wasn't vicious. Like, it, it was kind of like, I don't know. It's so, <laughs> it's so gross to even talk about. But I, I guess my point is that, like, there's some confusion about it in my mind. Like, how yeah. to characterize it, you know? I think it's often not vicious. And I think, yeah, I think maybe, like... People think like in your mind, like, you you know, you have this idea of like these people as monsters, but they're just like people who are like growing up in this system where it's like, that's what you're supposed to do if you're like 16 and at a party. Um, and, and when you get super drunk and you're, you know, your judgment is impaired and you're uh, hormonal and you want to get laid or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a bad combination. Yeah, it just, it's a it's, really messy. It's situation. so messy. Yeah. yeah. And, and. I guess like binge drinking, the binge drinking culture, um, I don't know. I don't want to sound like an old guy, you know, who's sort of a stick in the mud, but like, it's got a, it's a bad recipe. It's got to change. Like take some mushrooms and go to Hampshire college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Not and, that Hampshire college was like ideal. Uh, like things definitely happened at Hampshire too, but right. yeah, yeah. They happen everywhere. And yeah. So here's a, here's a question that I've been turning over in my mind. And like, because of the themes of your book, um, you know, themes of trauma and, uh, violence, especially like violence towards women. Um, you know, you're, you're as good of a person to ask about it as anybody, but like I have seen just to use like a current context, you know, the Harvey Weinstein thing, like all of these stories coming out, women sharing their stories and feeling empowered to do so for maybe the first time ever, you know, and to say, Hey, like this has got to stop. And then, um, you know, there's the, the sense of justice, uh, or, you know, justice seeking that people have where we want to see things change. We want to see Harvey Weinstein be excommunicated, um, you know, all natural and, uh, right. But there's also a part of me sometimes, um, not necessarily in the context of Harvey, but just generally, especially like on social media where I see people reacting to whatever the injustice might be, whether it's gender-based, uh, whether it's racial, whether it's political, whether it's all of the above, you know, and I sense a real anger that isn't necessarily, uh, it, it's justified, you know, it's a lot of times it's justifiable anger, but in that anger, there's like a desire for vengeance. I think social media can be like really reactionary and like, get, like there's almost like this contest for like, who can be the most ethical or, um, like virtue signaling. Yeah. Performative virtue yeah, so signaling. Performative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like I, I sometimes have done some of that and then I'll catch myself and I'll be like, did I just retweet that? Cause I really meant to. Or did I want people to see me retweeting it? Like right, I've had that conversation right. with myself. Yeah, it's hard. To, yeah, it's hard not to feel like that on social media. I think. Are you on it? Um, reluctantly, and only very recently. Just to <laughs> um, like promote the book, or yeah, I got on. I got on like Facebook, like I don't know, a little over a year ago, just because I realized I'd like moved around so much um, that it was just a good way to keep in touch with people. Um, and then like yeah, Twitter. I feel like it's good for like literary stuff and yeah i don't know but it does have its you know it's 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 sort of a it feels like it's a window into people's inner worlds at least their their immediate reactive selves you know because yeah. you're getting a kind of like real time uh a real time feed of how people are responding to this stuff and 
I don't know. I guess it's a concern of mine. Like I don't want to seem insensitive and I don't want to, I'm not drawing an equivalence. I'm just thinking to myself, like, well, what's going to be effective? Like mm -hmm. if we really want to make change, then uh, how do we go about responding to injustice? Yeah, no, I have that feeling also sometimes. I think Rebecca Solnit had a really good piece in Harper's like, I don't know, maybe like six months ago um, that was sort of about resistance and anger. And like, she is someone who's, you know, been an activist for like so many decades and is so like amazing. And what she said that like really resonated with me was something that I'm going to like, she said it much better, but something about like how, um, you know, like anger, anger can only last so long. Like it's, it like sort of like burns itself out. And like, to, this is going to be a movement that's going to take time and years and decades. And if like, we're going to be in it for the long haul. Like, like anger can't be like anger can be like anger is a totally valid response, but it can't be the only response. Well, anger is blind, yeah. you know, or at least like heavily vision impaired. Like when you're really angry and you're speaking and acting from anger, um, in that hot moment, you know, I feel like a lot of times you say the wrong thing or say the right thing in the wrong way, mm -hmm. <laughs> or just, you know, I know, I know it from experience, you know, we all get angry and I very rarely act or speak from anger and then feel good about it afterwards. It's sort of like that sugar high. And then afterwards you're like, eh. right. you know, like I should have been nicer to that customer service represent, you know, representative, um, who that's like, I think where my worst self comes out. Well, it's so like, it's so dehumanized in a way, like you're not seeing them. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, you know what I hate about it? And I always say this to them which I, you know, hopefully maybe like redeems me somewhat, but only somewhat is I always make the point where I'm like, you, you know, I was like, you realize in your job that you're just a human shield. And I, I feel bad, you know, because I know that you it's between, you know, you are what stands between me and the people who make the decisions that have created this circumstance. And they put you there so that they don't have to deal with me. Right. Right. I say things like that. Is that dickish? No, I think okay. that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, Sorry. You're a human shield. <laughs> yeah. I can get very relentless, but it's, you know, it's a big question and it's not easy. You know, it's not easy at all. There's no easy answer. And like, um, you were talking about with respect to soul, like it's a long game. And what concerns me because the public square for, for good or for ill now is on social and it, it people are there every day. Like that's where the action is or so much of the action. And so when people are getting these real-time feeds of reactive behavior and anger and outrage, some of it justified, others of it not so much, what I worry about is that when people are speaking and acting, myself included, uh, whether it's whatever context, politics, gender, race, whatever it is, when you're speaking and acting from those places, um, you might be calcifying people into an oppositional stance who might otherwise actually come, come around to your side. That's the thing. It's not just like you're calcifying people who are just like kind of a close to a lost cause, you know, like the hardcore racists or the hardcore misogynists. There are a lot of people who I feel like can be swung mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, we have to think about those people, you know? And like, yeah. I don't know. I feel like the, there's that wide middle and that's where we need to be focusing most of our attention. Yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember 
like sometime like a couple years after college, like you know, like coming out of like this like really liberal like little bubble of a school, and then just sort of like being shocked by like the real world that wasn't all like that. And I think I I was very like confrontational and like um, I remember like I think like it took me like a few years, but I finally had a realization that like you could like try to get people to like come onto your side, and like that that was better than it's like, also harder work though yeah like that process is is longer and more up and there's more ups and downs you know what i'm saying it's not yeah. like it's not like one big powerful statement and suddenly people just get converted though i guess that might happen every once in a while but sometimes it does sometimes. Like, you know, if it's like about a small thing it does happen well it yeah. makes me think of like this uh the tragedy in las vegas this terrible shooting and there was that country star who like posted on facebook or whatever where he's like i've been a you know gun owner and fetishist or whatever forever second amendment guy and he's like i was so wrong and that kind of thing yeah. happens everyone and i was gl so glad to see it but i'm just sad that it took that like suddenly right. when you're in a hail of bullets it's like oh shit like maybe we shouldn't have like automatic weapons uh, you know at walmart for sale and whatever but right it's scary if that's what it's going to take to change people's minds well and also when it happens to you right like that's a part that's a that's a thing in humanity that frustrates me Wow, I'm really, f I'm airing grievances right now. I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's this thing where, and this is just to tie it back to uh, the world of writing and fiction. This is the, you know, the common argument that's made when people talk about the merits of reading fiction in particular is that it does foster a sense of empathy and it does work those muscles and get you to uh, imagine in a deep way what it's like to be in somebody else's skin. And it frustrates me when, it takes something like that in order to get people to come around to another perspective <laughs> where it's like, well, you know, once like my kid is gay, then suddenly gay marriage is okay. Once, you know, my family suffers a terrible illness and suddenly like, well, we all need healthcare. Okay. And so, you know, there's a lot to learn all the way around, but especially for me. <laughs> <laughs> I need like, I need a lot of, I feel like I need a lot of, uh, reading time. You know, I need to get on a Greyhound bus to Salt Lake city immediately. <laughs> <laughs> With Jack Kerouac. Yes. I just need to, I need Jack Kerouac to, uh, somehow inform me through his, uh, through the dated misogyny of his male, female interactions in his novels. Um, so how do you feel now that the book is in print? Like after all that you go through, when we got through most of it, you were in New York and then I'm imagining you eventually somehow left New York and came west to get your doctorate. Is that what happened? Well, I, was in, I so I worked for. Eventually, I started working for the New York Observer. I worked there for two years. Then I went to Cambodia to work for a newspaper there. Then I came. came How back was Cambodia? Yeah. How do you pronounce? It? Is it Phnom Penh? Phnom Penh. Yeah, yeah. it's in Phnom Penh. That's yeah. a beautiful place. It is. I read yeah. a book when I was just out of college. By a guy that his name was Robert Bingham. Oh yeah, I have that book. Lightning. Lightning on the sun. Lightning yeah, he on the sun. He worked at my newspaper. Okay, because yeah. he was yeah, it was set in Phnom Penh. That was mm -hmm. the only book that I've ever read that was set in Phnom Penh. Yeah. But he like OD'd. It was a, kind of yeah, a tragic really story. Sad. But yeah. there's like a there's a literary prize named after yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you have that book? Did you read it? I did read it. I I only read it recently, actually. I mean, I knew about it when I was in Phnom Penh because there's not that many books that have been like. It was particularly about our newspaper. I think that was the only one I, I read about it, kind of. But um, how long were you there for? I was there for two years. 
Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a good amount of time to be yeah. in Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. How did it, did, did it change you? Yeah. Yeah. In what um, ways? I don't know. Um, I think I, it's actually like very, like, it's weird to talk about, about it now because, um, like a month ago, the paper was, was like forcibly shut down by the government. There's like a crackdown on media and the opposition that's going on right now. And it's like, yeah, like very horrifying. And it just, it didn't come out of nowhere. Like it's obviously been like building, but it still felt, it was, it was shocking. And, um, yeah, I just like, I, I like cried all day, like when it happened. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I have like so much affection for that newspaper and like, um, the people who worked there and it was, you know, a lot of it was really difficult and like a lot of it was like, you know, like, um, like getting screamed at by editors and like, you know, just like working really, really long hours. Um, but how did you get the job? Um, well, so I'd been working for the New York Observer. I had like this weird column that I did there that had to do with like history and architecture where I would like write about a building each, each week. And then, I don't know, the New York Observer was bought by Jared Kushner. Um, when you were there? A, f- a couple years before I was there, but it was like an, starting in a death spiral. Do you know Jared Kushner? Uh, no, no. Oh. He came to the newsroom like once like the whole time that i was there oh, okay. i think um he he was like but i mean people have stories about him and like that you know like he was uh he like butted heads with a lot of the editors um the like long-term editor-in-chief left and that was sort of like the beginning of the end of the new york observer and then like everyone after that was just sort of like I don't know. It was like that, that teacher and Harry Potter, like the defense against the dark arts teacher, like they just like got killed off each year. Um, and so like the editor who had brought me on eventually got like fired or like the guy who was like supportive of my work. And so then like my column got cut. So I was like, to find something else to do. Um, so I was like looking for jobs and it just wound up in Cambodia. Wow. Yeah. That's cool though. Yeah. You, you must be glad you did that. I am. Yeah. Cause it's the kind of thing it's hard to do. Like, I guess it, I mean, depends on the circumstances of your life, but it feels like youth is a good time to move to Cambodia for two years. Yeah. It's definitely the best time. Like you can just like go. Yeah. yeah. Did you travel all around Asia and stuff like that while you were there? I traveled a lot. Yeah. You made yeah. some good friends. Yeah. You like the Cambodian people? Yeah. 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 I mean, like we, we were like, I, our I, staff I, was do like, you like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> our staff was like half, um, like half foreigners, half Cambodian reporters. And yeah, they're, they're amazing. Wow. And then you come back from Cambodia and. Then I went, I came back to go to grad school, um, which I did in Kansas city in Missouri. Where? Um, the university of Missouri. Oh. I did my MFA there. In Kansas city though? Yeah. Not in Columbia. Not in Columbia. Columbia has like a Ph the PhD program. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah. So Cambodia to Kansas City. Yeah. How was that transition? It was a big transition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I never lived in the Midwest before, so I think it was like a good experience. It's exotic. Yeah. It was more more different than I expected it to be. I was sort of like, oh, it's like, you know, everywhere else in America. But yeah. Not so much? Or it was every like everywhere no, else? No, no, no. I was like I was surprised. <laughs> Yeah. Surprised by how? Um, 
it was just uh, like very different than the world that I had grown up in. Like just like certain like cultural touchstones that I had were just like not shared in a way that was like very surprising to me. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but you survived. I survived. And then you came west from there. Yeah. Yeah. And what was like? What was the impetus? Just I got to get out of Kansas City, or I applied to the PhD program here, and I came for that. So it's just yeah. acad- academia. Yeah. <laughs> and what are you going? Are you going to teach? Um. Yeah. I don't have. I don't teach now. I'll teach next year. Um. Yeah. You don't. You don't have to teach your first and second years, which is. Nice. Do you like Los Angeles? I do actually. Like I. I love it. I, I wasn't expecting to, but I do. And do you think that like well, like once you get your PhD, then you have to go look for a job? Is that the way? Could, I think so. Could yeah. be anywhere. Could You're be like, anywhere. Because I, so. I think you sort of hit the ceiling on school at this yeah. point. Once you get the PhD, like what else are you going to do? Well, I'm like in my just in my. I'm just starting my second year, um, so I still have some time. Um, so like even like thinking about like what I'll do afterwards feels really far away. But how long is the PhD yeah. program? five years oh good for you yeah some people do longer i don't know i'll, I'll stay as long as they let me I yeah. yeah that's great yeah <laughs> and do you, are you working on another book kind of i have yeah yeah i think so but i don't know what it is yet like what form, early stages yeah like what form it will take like is it like a novella or a novel or like i would like to do something longer the word novel seems really scary, so I hesitate to use it. Um, but last yeah. time you tried to write a novel, you wrote a collection of short stories. Right. Usually Maybe that'll other, happen. Usually it's the other way around, though. You should, you should, what you should do is say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a short story, and then it'll become a novel. Mm. Because if you say you're going to write a novel or a novella, it's going to go the other way. That's true. That's true. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, like it, that's unique. Usually the people I talk to in here, it's like, oh, yeah, I thought it was a short story, and then 700 pages later. Right. But you wrote 700 pages and then we're like, I really like these four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Uh, well, it's been great talking with you. Yeah, great talking to you. Thank you for coming over here. Congratulations on the publication of your collection. And I wish you well with your PhD and with uh, whatever you write next. Thank you. All right, guys, there you go. That is Emily Gaminder. Her debut story collection is called Dead Girls and Other Stories, winner of the Dezank Books Short Story Prize, out there now from Dezank Books, Dead Girls and Other Stories. You can find Emily online at emilygaminder.com. Her Twitter handle is at emilygaminder. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. Don't forget to uh, throw a couple of bucks in the hat at patreon.com slash otherpplpod if you were so inclined. Don't forget the uh, email address uh, for this podcast. And if you want to uh, drop me a line, it's letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Uh, it's funny because, you know, I was listening to some of the interview. I was kind of listening to the playback as I was uh, noodling with the uh, edit on this episode. And I realized that I touched uh, in my conversation with Emily on a lot of the things that I tried to avoid in my monologue. So I'm thwarted. Oh, what this compulsion is in me to want to try to like chatter about this. I should just shut the fuck up. Says the uh, podcaster. Anyway, that's my new that's my new plan. We'll see how uh, how well it goes. But uh, it was great talking with her and uh, having a chance to meet her. Dead girls and other stories. Get your copy right now. Right now.
Uh, what else? I don't know. I don't know what else. It's, uh, it's late. I'm tired. Gotta go to bed. My parents are here. Thanksgiving. Oh, happy Thanksgiving. That's what I should say. You're probably traveling. Perhaps you're traveling as you listen to this. Are you in transit? Are you stuck in an airport? Are you on a road trip? Are you wearing headphones at the table to try to avoid talking to your family? Whatever it is, I hope you have a nice Thanksgiving. I hope you have something that you're grateful for. And uh, I want you guys to know that I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for my listeners. I'm grateful for anybody who, uh, you know, gives me an hour of their time to just talk into their head. Possibly multiple hours. And I'm grateful to the people who uh, guest on this program, who sit here and subject themselves to my questioning. I'm a grateful man. There's a lot to be thankful for. You can always find something. It's, it may seem hard, but you can find something. It's like, oh, you know, like I have eyes. That's nice. I can see things. Or if, if you don't have eyes, you can be like, well, I have a mouth. I can, like, eat food. I have food. <laughs> it's got to keep it simple, right? If you, but if you keep it simple and you drill down into the simple stuff, it's actually very big. It's a lot to be grateful for, right? Isn't that the point? I think I just figured it out. <laughs>